0: Welcome to Into Theology, I am joined with Ian Clary, professor, doctor, reverend, great Ian Clary. And we're back to studying great works of theology that are not in the Bible. And this is a great work of theology that we've started and are continuing to read again, which is John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. We got up to uh, book three and I guess chapter 19 last time. And basically if you have the, the two volume battles edition, that means we finished volume one. And then we took a break and studied Ecclesiastes and Job, which was a ton of fun. And I haven't talked to Ian about this, but I thought we could do something like maybe Paul or something after this, after wow. Calvin. Yeah. Um, but but the idea is that uh, the Bible is actually a theological book. Sometimes we think of the Bible as not theological, it's a history thing. And then we do theology afterwards. But in a real sense, I mean, Moses is a, theo- well, he is definitely a
1: theologian. Wow. <laughs> um. Yeah, i mean you think like richard gaffin has a phenomenal uh essay uh called paul the theologian and uh you know goes through and and what's paul doing he's theologizing from the hebrew bible that he was so well trained in and then he's taking that and and reading that in light of now christ and what he knows from the gospels and what he would have heard firsthand from the apostles when he was being trained by them and uh and so paul then turns out to be is, I argue in my theology class is the first work of Christian systematic theology is actually Romans because it's so logically laid out. And Paul's yeah. really the first Christian theologian.
0: Oh, I think that's that's probably correct. I mean, when you think about what Paul's doing, there, there's two, well, there's really three things he's looking at. The scriptures, which could only be the Old Testament. All of Paul's letters are written before any gospel book is is written. So it's scriptures, which is the Old Testament. Second is it's Jesus. So what he actually did in real history, and then third, the world around him. Um, and so he is, yeah, definitely a theologian. So I think maybe Paul is, is a theologian of the, of the scriptures and Christ.
1: But Paul, and Paul th- think about it too, right? Think about how important metaphysics is to yeah. theology, and he's definitely got a metaphysics. So I mean, there's all that stuff that you could throw in there.
0: Well, he grew up in Tarsus, right? And that was, a is that if. Remembering this correctly, there was—it's a massive, massive philosophical talent. So he would, have, he would have been as a kid seeing people standing up in the marketplace and philosophizing, which, by the way, meant how you live, how you worship—it's a total thing. That's why when Paul talks about who God is and how to live in his letters, that's the same thing as what philosophy could have done, because it was often practical. Hebrews is interesting because it's the same thing, but it's but it's also adding another layer of liturgical interpretation. The whole I mean, book.
1: You want to talk about so-called Christian Platonism?
0: Oh, so, man! Like,
1: yeah, you know, tabernacle, all that kind of stuff. Is up in yeah. Uh,
0: anyways, those are fascinating things. Um, for now, we're just going to do like a brief kind of restart of Calvin. It's going to be a very short episode today. We're in Book Three, uh, Chapter Twenty, where Calvin talks about prayer. So he works through prayer, and then he um, interprets the uh, the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Which is kind of a commonplace in cat in catechisms during the Reformation. I think Luther does the Lord's Prayer, um, the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. and like the Apostles' Creed, yeah. and that's pretty normal. And I th- the first I think edition, yes, I recall correctly
1: too. I think the, yeah, the first edition of Institutes follows at same time.
0: Yeah, and that would be I think it's like 1536 or so the first edition. I can't remember or 30, whatever that year is. But so, so Calvin bit ends up expanding it to the point of this final edition, which is um, in Latin 1559. And it's really where he feels satisfied with uh, his work. And so you can see a lot of that early catechical thing and we're into to prayer and what follows is actually predestination, which is interesting because predestination for Calvin is in part of book three, which is Christ yep. the Redeemer we almost completely think of predestination as being something in like the attributes of God or in God himself. pretemporal. Pretemporal, Yeah. Where Calvin sees it as, as like the way that we understand it anyways, as part of the reception of Christ as mediator. Yeah. And actually I think Paul does too. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I think Paul sees predestination and justification uh, as, as two friends for our sake. And I don't think he really wants us to do too much of a, pretemporal meditation. Vermily makes this point when it comes to um we're way off topic. <laughs> Wait. Okay. But Vermily makes this point when he talks about um election and and uh, reprobation. This election is is you know obviously clearly in the, I'm remembering but clearly in the Bible reprobation is not it's like it's there but like it's not emphasized and therefore we shouldn't emphasize it either. Meaning that I think predestination is entirely a positive doctrine. It's for our sake, for our assurance, for our comfort um to understand that we're justified freely because it wouldn't be free if there was some foreseen merit in us but because it's unforeseen or it is predestined uh that we would believe then we can actually rely upon ourselves, but then have to realize it's totally free grace and yeah. therefore it's external to us and, and so on
1: if i recall correctly that that's a similar argument that heinrich bullinder in zurich makes the guy who took over after zwingli um, really helpful book on that actually is a, a book on on Bolinger and predestination by Cornelis Venema, um, where he gets into that whole debate over double predestination and 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 he he's if what you're saying about Vermilia is accurate, then he sounds very much like what Bullinger would say too. They weren't quite with Calvin on the double predestination.
0: Stuff. Yeah, Calvin's much stronger on double predestination. I was reading his Romans commentary on, uh, or no, actually it might have been Institutes, but really it's going over Romans as well. It was both technically, because I read, but anyways, it doesn't matter where I got her from. <laughs> uh, Kelvin is uh, very clear on double predestination. I actually don't agree. Like, I think it's right because the Bible affirms, uh, I think in Romans 9, it, but it is so unemphasized compared to the positive part,
1: yeah. especially
0: when you look at all the other aspects of scripture and how elections talked about, especially when it comes to Israel and so on in the Old Testament. That. I think the Bible already tells us what to focus on. It's the things that are repeated constantly, yeah. rather than the necessary inferences that are interesting.
1: But you can also see the pastoral implication of it, right? So even here, in terms of the link with prayer, right? So Calvin is a pastor, and he wants his people to to feel the comforts of the gospel. He doesn't. You don't want all the idle speculation, and so predestination is intended to be a comfort, right? It's like if you actually get that, like, oh. Jesus Christ actually saved me from all my sin. None of my, there's nothing I do that conditioned this. And so even as a Christian, if I sin grievously, that doesn't like, that doesn't exclude me uh, because he saved me apart from my sin because of it, but not, you know, it's not because I've done anything good, but he's just saved me because he loves me. And and so the comforts that come with prayers we're going to be talking about, and then the comforts that come with the intended use of predestination fit together, like, you know, hand in hand.
0: Well, the medieval and reformed identification of justification and predestination as the same, or sort of an overlap overlapping topic, especially Calvin's, um, I can't remember if it's an Institute's or Romans commentary, really helped me to see that the reason why we affirm predestination is to ensure grace is free. In -hmm. any other scenario in which say God creates and sees foreseen merits or or so on, then grace is not free. It's earned. No. And so predestination is the, is the thing that ensures that grace is free. Free grace is free precisely because it's predestined yep. and therefore justification is something you receive by faith, not something that you generate. You can't, right. before salvation, dispose yourself towards it per se, you can't, Um, Do what is in you to sort of merit God's covenantal thumbs up to give you the grace of justification or the like, but it's entirely free because it's predestined. Uh, Let me just briefly read something to you from chapter 20 and then section two of book three, which is on prayer. Um, And one other passage, if I can find it really quick, because what I found right at the beginning of Calvin's discussion so fascinating, is that for Calvin, when it comes to prayer, for Calvin, prayer in part is the experience of God, which is something that you may not expect from Calvin, and something that you may not expect from prayer today, and there's reasons why we might not expect that, we can maybe explore that when we're done reading this, but let me just read this to you, it's really the first paragraph of section two there, of chapter 20. It is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches, which are laid up for us with the heavenly father. For there is a communion of men with God by which this is Hebrews having entered the heavenly sanctuary. They appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience where necessity so demands that what they believed was not in vain. Although he had promised it in word alone, Therefore, we see that to us, nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not also bidden to ask of him in prayers. So true it is that we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel in which our faith has gazed upon. If you jump over to section 26 and at the beginning of the third paragraph, which is on page 886 in the, in the, is it battles? I can't remember what I have. I think so. Um, It says this, and we ought to note that in general, that the experience of God's grace, both towards us and towards others, is no common aid in confirming faith in his promises. So on.
1: Uh, So what you're saying is prayer is not just about, Lord, give me this. No. It's not not transactional.
0: It's uh, Calvin says uh, elsewhere that it's not, not so much for him, but for us, prayer. Yeah. I can't remember. I just popped in my head. So I can't remember the context, but he he says something to that effect. I actually, so I think the Lord's supper and baptism are the same. The thing that we undervalue in Christian ritual or faith is the experience of God. So like preaching is often thought to be like great information. And I've intellectually learned, Uh, but yet even someone like Jonathan Edwards will say the primary value of a sermon is the, uh, the, uh, what is it, the the affection that you feel at the time or something to that effect? Um you should always be studying scripture, but the, the sermon on Sunday is is to affect worship and transformation. It's not so much a data dump, although there will be data, as it is that the you Lord's can't, Supper it can
1: be to the exclusion of the data either, it can't happen but that's not like the final
0: endpoint. Yeah, yeah, it's not either or, right? Um Baptism itself through all the signs and all, but the Lord's supper too. The reason why, I mean, Calvin wanted to do the Lord's supper weekly, but was never allowed to. And then all the, and so he had to do, I think four times a year, then all the Calvinistic churches do it four times a year to honor Calvin who wanted to do it weekly. Um, the, uh, but the reason you'd want to do that weekly is because it's the, you're tasting an experience of faith that, that solidifies, firms it up. In fact, Calvin, if memory serves in his Lord's supper talk and I guess book four, does emphasize that as well. It kind of confirms our faith. It's that experience that actually keeps you sure. So you you have lots of people who talk about like, why do I feel um, far from God? Or why do I doubt and all these kinds of questions. And I don't think it's mystical to say, well, have you communed with God? Have you taken the Lord's
1: Supper? Uh, It's mystical in the best sense. In the
0: best, yeah, in the best sense.
1: Like the way the Puritans will speak of mystical union with Christ and things like that. It's experiential.
0: Calvin will affirm there were irreducible unions of body and soul just as yeah. the the body needs food to be healthy like so does the soul need the lord's supper to be healthy so does the soul need communion with the with the with god who is spirit to be where it ought to be we're, we're renewed in the inner man the resurrection unites the two realities but for now our flesh lags <laughs> behind our spiritual regeneration until the it's resurrection Roman, when both is
1: romans 7 what 14 through first half of yeah Romans eight. <laughs> you know? the mind
0: that internal principle paul calls it is, is at war with the yeah. flesh that external principle yeah
1: but in, then in the, flesh. the law of the spirit that, that comes in Romans eight, you know
0: yeah and the flesh is where where um uh where the passions and desires lie yeah. through which we experience them sensibly and then commit sin as a whole person So when it comes to prayer, Calvin's gonna say a lot. So this is just a part of Calvin, but it's interesting, it's at the beginning of his his, his section, is that communion with God, that experience, that sharing up of of faith through communion with him occurs through prayer. Practically speaking, if you're married, it'd be weird if you never talked to your wife. (laughs) You wouldn't feel close to her. Um, Theologically speaking, it's weird that you're not talking to your heavenly father. How can you say you're close to him? More than that, when you talk to your wife, you you're, you still are in the flesh and all that kind of stuff. And there's this whole problems happening. But with God, you have this direct communion by the spirit, by which you can be like, Calvin says you enter into the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews says the very same thing. Basically, because Christ went before us, we can have boldness to, to approach the throne of grace. Meaning that when you pray in some spiritual sense, the spirit and by spiritual, I mean the spirit is bringing us before God and Christ.
1: Uh, what I like too is, you know, because he, he talks so much, he'll talk so much about the the treasures, right? For the institutes, there's the treasures of the gospel, there's the treasures of the kingdom of heaven and all this kind of thing. And so then he's saying then that, it, 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 that prayer, prayer is almost pictured like a shovel, right? That you have to actually pick up and start digging with in order to appropriate what he calls here, as you just read. The treasures of the gospel uh, of our lord which is discovered to the eye of faith and so it's like so so prayer is intended to have this effect of like bringing those benefits like you're saying with the lord's supper right it's like you receive the benefit so here you're getting these benefits of the gospel itself and because of the language that he's using of digging right it's work it's yeah. not just like this it's a know,
0: spiritual oh discipline. lord
1: bless my day kind of stuff I mean, you think about like when you're digging a hole to get at a treasure down there, like you are you're you're using up all your energy and you're digging with real intention to get to that treasure, you know, so it, no wonder then when you get like, you know, the rule of Benedict and the Benedictines and all that sort of stuff, where their motto is Ora et labora, it's like prayer and work, you know, and uh, the fact that they they use their hands and we're doing things physically, was a direct correspondence to the actual labor of the of work like prayer, you know?
0: Yeah, we all know that you need to go to the gym to make your flesh stronger, but how do you make your soul stronger? Yeah, right. Like <laughs> at those pipes. Well, and and we, we think, well, it's nothing, right? Like you go to church on Sunday and you just kind of receive something, move on. Yeah. But you never think of exercise that way. You don't just sit there and receive exercise, right? You, you do. Now it's useful maybe to reiterate or to, to note rather, justification is monergistic sanctification is synergistic meaning you work it's a it's a it's it's part of your work it's a spirit working yeah, literally just
1: lecturing on this a couple hours
0: okay <laughs> <laughs> well it's philippians philippians 2 uh
1: you're 12 you know. and 13
0: it's god who works in you to to will and to work for his good can you remember it offhand i'm, I'm misquoting yeah, it,
1: he calls you right after the carmen christie he says that therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and i was i was telling my students I'm like that's horrifying if that's all we have is verse 12 thank God for verse 13, right? Because it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And you're like, whoa, like, so, and then, you know, I I was articulate this to students I'm like, this is, and we had just talked about Romans seven and and Romans eight and the spirit being in you. I'm like, that's why it can happen, right? Because the spirit indwells you, but because the operations of the Trinity are unified, therefore now you have the triune God within you. And so now you can actually do this work, even though it's God, God actually doing it, you know.
0: Well, it's funny. We're talking about working out and it's work out your salvation, which is I know it's a little bit of a different kind of sense
1: that No, it it is labor though. That's where the fear and trembling comes in. It's hard, man. Like, so you know, I said if this is not a statement about works-based salvation, if you've been saved, allow it to work itself out through you. And that if you really do that, is gonna promote fear and trembling.
0: So so people I think typically struggle with prayer because well, maybe this way, a good prayer could mean that you sit, like maybe you're talking, but you're relatively alone or with a group, whatever, or at church, but it could be alone and you have to kind of concentrate and communicate with someone for sure. for multiple minutes. And then your phone's dinging and you want to check Twitter. You can do it in a group, which, uh, like in a Bible study sitting, which is often easier. In church, um, traditionally, you would pray as a community together. That, is interestingly on the, on the decline in some circles, which is probably not good. But when when it comes to individual prayer, I think that's hard for many of us in particular, because of how short our attention spans are. And because there doesn't seem to be any sort of material benefit. And one thing I would notice, well, maybe there's no material benefit. Well, there's an effect anyway, Um, is when I'm thinking about faith, and I think probably you too, I think we're meaning tangible, actual, spiritual growth that is observable, experiential, and fulsome. So that when I take the Lord's Supper on Sunday, if I do it weekly, say, and if I listen to sermons and if I'm praying, I'm actually transformed, like something's different about me, like actually different. And so if, if prayer helps to confirm promises, that means I doubt less. That means I'm anxious less. It doesn't mean that sin's gone, because Romans 7, you mentioned, that's still in the Bible. But there's an actual real change, and it takes work. Oh. And you could, I mean, it's just how, the, I mean, part of it is how we are naturally. Our our mind, uh, the things that we concentrate on, that we do over and over, you know, changes. Our, our brain changes, and our body changes, and we get used to it. And we learn to feel certain ways about certain things. But if you can learn to feel certain ways about God, to think certain ways about God, and let the oh. Spirit work in and through you, it's an, interestingly in a naturally supernatural way, meaning it's natural, but the spirit is working to affect it in your nature. Well, um, you actually will change really and truly. And it's not like, it's not pleasant fiction. Um, and I think that's, I just wanna talk about these things. I think a lot of people think, okay, well, this is just something you do and they add it to their checkbox, but it's a real experiential change that is noticeable in your life and will eventually be noticeable to others.
1: Yeah. that's what makes it so hard right because i mean to just pray on a physical level is not a hard thing to do you just you know it's not hard to go walk into a room and just start speaking right but when you're actually now engaged with god and it's prayer it's hard to do because of the sin nature that you're still dealing with and so what becomes the same with reading your bible it's like physically it's easy to do you just pick up a book flip pages read words that's physically easy easy but the second it comes down to oh i need to now read this out of like a desire for that transformation and change now it becomes really really hard right and uh i think that's because satan doesn't want you to change he doesn't want he's he's happy with complacent christians and uh, your sin nature that you're struggling against doesn't want that law of sin You know, there's a quote here that I give to my students. I'll read it. It's actually from John Bunyan. And here's the guy, right? So think about who Bunyan is for a second. It's a guy who was thrown in prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel. Um, He's the guy that writes Pilgrim's Progress. He's a great pastor, great theologian. John Owen would weep sitting under Bunyan's preaching, okay? And then Bunyan says this. He says, may I but speak of my own experience and from that tell you the difficulty of praying to God as I ought. It is enough to make your poor, blind, carnal men to entertain strange thoughts of me. For as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it so loath to go to God, and when it is with him, so loath to stay with him, that many times I'm forced in my prayers, first to beg God that he would take mine heart and set it on himself in Christ, and when it is there, that he should keep it there. Nay, many times I know not what to pray for, I am so blind, or how to pray, I am so ignorant. Only blessed be grace. The Spirit helps our infirmities, Romans eight. You know, and it's like that's Bunyan, and I'm like, okay, now I realize I'm not alone in this. Like here, you have this incredible human being, this incredible Christian, and he's like, I'm my soul is loath to go to God in prayer and loath to stay there. Mm. It's
0: a good place to end. Um, we did a little brief summary of prayer. We didn't do too much of Calvin today. Just read some of it. Next week, we're doing book three chapters 21 to 22, 21's on predestination, I believe. So we'll get into some really kind of heady things, but enjoy reading about prayer if you've haven't read it yet. And if you have, hopefully this conversation helped to spur you on to pray yourself. So thanks, Ian. We'll see you next time.